Hello and welcome to another episode of Doing Things Better, Doing Better Things. Um, and it's mid-lockdown and I thought I'd try and... I thought I'd try and release something. I've held off releasing this one for a few weeks because um, it's genuinely one of the most uplifting um, and moving conversations I think I've I've ever had. Um, and, and you know the ethos of the series now. I'm, I'm finding those people who do amazing things or are striving to do things better and to tell them their stories. And this is a conversation with Marie Mitchell, who I'm not going to steal any of her thunder at all, who has an incredible story. But she is just the most soulful person, the most beautiful, beautiful person inside and out and, and, is, and is doing great work. And I absolutely loved the conversation. Um, very moving and ultimately phenomenally inspiring. But with this, with this grounding in there, this being able to... She's got such a knack of bringing you back to who you are, to your, to your, your fibre, your, your very being. And that's, a, that's an utter gift. So I'll, I'll, I'll tail this more than top this. Um, please tuck in and I really hope you enjoy it. So hello, I'm sat in um, Hackney Down Studios at a great kind of food collective called Down Market where I've just eaten some Burmese food from um, Wadi, Wadi? Yeah, Wadi. And it was immense. And it was cooked for me by um, Marie, who I'm going to talking to today. Marie, tell me about yourself. Hello, Mark. Um, yes, I'm Marie, Marie Mitchell. Um, I co-founded a business called Island Social Club, which is... Um, I suppose my and my business partners, but essentially my exploration of Caribbean culture via food and drink. And yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's amazing. And so, where is Island Social Club? So, Island Social Club was, um, we had a pop up uh, in Haggerston in East London, but we are on hiatus at the moment because we're in the process of looking at how we can crowdfund or source funding so that we can actually open our first own bricks and mortar site. Amazing. Yes, yeah, so we're back to kind of pop-up and supper club territory at the moment. And then we're also hopefully planning a Caribbean film festival for the summer. Brilliant. Yeah, around Windrush Day. And we are also going to carry on with our Nyaming Supper Club series, where we collaborate with a fellow chef, which has always been a female chef, not intentionally, um, which is a kind of deeper investigation of Caribbean cuisine. Incredible. Yes. So you grew up in, in London? I did, in South London, yeah. South London, not East London? Yeah, South. But you now live in East London? Yeah, I'd affected North of the River. <laughs> See, I, I feel a bit sick every time I go South of the River. Oh, no! Yeah, and I don't know why that is. I love South. I'm, well, I, I'm certain there are great places there. Um, it's the I, transport that gets me. Yeah, well, you're stuck, aren't you? Yeah. Bugged. Yeah. So, but tell me about growing up. Tell me about your childhood. I had a beautiful childhood. Of my, both my parents, Barbara and Earl. Um, I just sorry. <laughs> I love I love both of those names, but Earl. I know, it's, uh, and it's E A R L E. Oh. <laughs> and his middle name's Barrington. Earl Barrington Mitchell. Mitchell yeah. <laughs> I love him already. He's a great man. He's a presence. <laughs> incredible. So tell me about growing up, the son of an Earl. Oh, I know it's great. Or daughter of an Earl. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was. I had a really free childhood. Childhood. Sorry. Um, 
I was always myself, which probably sounds really, um, I don't know, not easy, but just though that's kind of how people exist. But I was very free to be kind of be the child I wanted to be. Always very outspoken, had a strong sense of identity, I think, from quite a young age. Um, and just really liked to be able to craft time to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough that I was given that. I had a lot of energy as well. Um, and they they found ways to allow me to do things that would keep me entertained but that I fell in love with so I danced for years I danced for 16 years wow yeah danced at like Her Majesty's Theatre Royal Albert Hall wow yeah so I danced till I was 18 when I went to university and then that's when I stopped <laughs> because I just got into partying a bit too much but um yeah, so I, I loved, yeah, dancing that's, was a big thing. Well, that's heartbreaking. It is, and I think that's why I definitely have noticed when there are times when I've not been exercising as frequently, I definitely notice my mental health suffers in some ways because mm. I've, I've always been active. You know, I, I danced for years, but also I used to play football. Um, I did taekwondo. Well, there was loads of stuff. I mean, I, I learned... French after school before we actually started doing languages in, in class. You were driven. What was driving you? That's funny because I've never, I never classify myself as a driven person. But I suppose when I talk about these things, then it is. I just, I'm fascinated by the world, and I just love to to, to learn new things and to be exposed to new experiences. And I suppose a lot of these things gave me those opportunities, and now I get to do that in a more um, focused manner because. I'm now getting to do it about my cultural heritage that I've not managed to explore enough. So you were born in London? Yeah, born and, born and bred in London. But Earl and Barbara? But Earl and Barbara both born in Jamaica. Yeah. Mum um, was born in St James's Paris, Parish, and that's where she lived. And then Dad was from Kingston Six. And they both came over when they were eight. And what, when they were eight? Mm. So <laughs> growing up in South London, to your first generation Jamaican immigrant parents, mm. What were the stories of home that they told you? So I, I can't remember ones when I was little. I suppose what I actually just remember is being around our family and that being like the stories of home. Just like seeing them all together and joking and laughing and being silly and like them kind of, I suppose, reliving their childhood. Because hmm. um, they both grew up on the same estate. That's where they met. Well, I mean, they were a different place around South London, but then they ended up on the same estate in um, Earlsfield and that's when both families met which I think they were probably around 14-ish I, th- I think it was my grandma looked after my dad's youngest brother and so they got to know each other that way got you okay. yeah um, but as I've got older and I started investigating more I think one of the, 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 the most beautiful stories is my dad is he just remembers being in Jamaica and running around and picking fruits from trees and just eating them and getting trouble because people like stop stealing my fruit but he just remembers that vibrancy and just the freshness and the availability like the readily available delicious tropical fruits and vegetables that were just there in abundance and one of the distinct things is he remembers he came here and was like why have we moved to this cold dark place mm. where there's no color i think that was a really beautiful way of describing it like for him it was just it just it's like every, all the color had seeped away it's true um, though, isn't it, relative? Yeah, I mean, it is quite grey a lot. So did it... But it's metaphorical as well, I suppose, in, for, for a long time. He was like, you know, I was in somewhere where he was he was just part of the fabric, in a sense, and then suddenly you become an other when you emigrate to somewhere else and during those sorts of times, and even now, I mean, let's be honest about it, but 
Well, we have people your colour get shot and hassled <laughs> way more than yes. people my colour. Yeah. And it's just wrong. Yeah. Did he, um, did, did that manifest itself in, in how he felt about himself? Did he, did he feel lonely, lost? Um, did he, in, did he celebrate the difference? That, what, what, what did that mean to his everyday? I think my dad life? was just driven. And actually now, like, we're sitting here talking about it, I can see where I get it from in some respects because, you know, he tells me of stories of when he was little and he used to work three or four jobs when he was at school so that he could pay for his brothers, his siblings, to be able to go on school trips. And they don't know. They didn't know about it. <laughs> this is they what, do know. I know. But, this, but, you know, this, and I've said, why have you never spoken to him about it? And he was just like, what's the point? And for me, I think I'd, it's not that it's like he needs a validation, but it's, I find it very curious that this is something that he did and it was incredibly selfless and yet the people that it affected in many ways don't have a clue but maybe they do they just don't talk about it I don't know but it's interesting isn't it so yeah. how many brothers and sisters did he have he had four brothers one passed away or died um gosh how do I know nearly 20 years ago oh. yeah it was pretty tragic to this day I mean it was an open verdict so it's a bit Oh yeah, it was quite. Yeah, that that was. I think that was the first. I'd been exposed to death before that, but that was the first one where I was really like, "Wow, this is the world can be a very dark and mysterious place." Well, mm. it can. Tell me about your mum. My mum is a big ball of Just vibrant for the audio, energy. Right? There's a smile. <laughs> There's a smile that split Marie's face when she talked about her mother. <laughs> She is just joyful. She's mad. She's absolutely bonkers. But the thing is, I'm convinced that I'm not. And then um, I had my husband recording me the other day. I was in the bathroom and I was pretending that I was a passionate Italian chef and was talking about the vegetables I'd ordered and what I was going to cook with them. And I didn't realise I was in the bathroom and he was in the bedroom and he was just recording the audio. Awesome. <laughs> me, like, having a great time talking about soups. <laughs> So you inherited dad's drivenness and mum's, and mum's eccentricities. Basically, yeah. I love that. <laughs> what a combination. So, so what were the stories mum told you? Mum tells me stories. When I hear mum talk about Jamaica, I can just visualise her being a child. I can, I can sense her absolute freedom and that blissful innocence that you have when you're just you don't you don't think about the world you don't think about responsibility you're just a child like just pockets of conversations that I've just had mm. and just again the big thing that always comes up is just the, the, the fruits like my mum whenever we're anywhere tropical she's just obsessed with eating it because it's that being able to taste that's kind of it's that thing isn't it tasting home and maybe that's why somehow I've been drawn to food eventually because I was the fussiest child in the world when I was little <clears throat> you um that's amazing actually you just one sentence <laughs> tasting home that's really grounding I can completely understand mm. I mean I, <clears throat> that means something to me and mm. I don't live far from where I grew up yeah they lived a fuck of a long way from God, where yeah. they grew up and yeah. so like, I always describe food as a time as a time machine. It mm. takes you takes you back, but it, interestingly, there's, there's some geography going on there as mm. well. Mm. So was it a happy was it a happy childhood? It was a very happy childhood. Um, I did my brother did get sick when I was nine, but I never 
wanted for anything, never felt excluded. In fact, um, they were, my, both my parents were very protective of making sure that I had space to go and be a child still. Mm. I was always very old for my years anyway, so there was, no, there was never a chance that I wasn't going to take on a sense of responsibility. But um, I remember there was this kind of scheme or something that I was a part of, and it was for children that were siblings of a sick sibling. And so you'd go to like, I don't know, Thorpe Park and things like that. They'll take you to places all together and you'll just go and have fun. Wow. And you'll just get to be a, a child. And <clears throat> I mean, obviously looking back with hindsight, I'm, I'm so lucky that that was available to me uh, because I think a lot of the time you don't realize the responsibility that you are taking on, even when you're that young, when you have someone that's, that's sick from when you're quite little. Um, were you, the, were you, the, you weren't the oldest? No, my brother was the eldest. Yeah, yeah. He was six and a half years older than me. Okay. Yeah. You got anyone younger than you? No. It was just two of us now. It was just me. He died ten years... It'll be eleven years in the summer that he, he, he passed away. And when you... Um, when you think of him when he was happy mm. and well, how do you think of him? What sounds did he make? What, what, what did he do? How, how was his smile? Oh my God, one of the biggest, cheekiest smiles in the land. He was, I mean, as someone who had been having to battle very serious illness and dying almost a number of times before he was even 18, I used to look at him and you just, you wouldn't, he wouldn't let anything stop him. You know, he had, he had his five-year plans. He was so hardworking, so driven. Really very, very much someone who understood what he wanted in life. There's never any doubt about that. But was just the most loving and giving person ever. Like, really, really quite an exceptional human being. And that's the thing, I've been surrounded by very exceptional human beings that don't always necessarily know it. But, you know, my mum and dad... Um, I recently actually wrote about speaking at the two lectures in the summer and how that experience was um, a massive unburdening, I think, because there was, a, there was a weight that when my brother died that I took on, I think, because a lot of the time the language around <coughs> it from others was very much like, I've got to be, I've got to, I have to be strong, I have to be this, I have to be that. And it was weird, coincidentally, my mum actually said to me this week, we were just having a chat on the phone, she was like, I never thought about how it must have all been for you and I was on the bus and I was desperately trying not to cry because I was like my god this it's odd how you're kind of having these 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 conversations in your mind and then one of the most important people in the world sort of recognizes that it's not odd is it you're putting it out there I suppose I am yeah and and it's coming back to you you were um, extraordinary at the do lectures oh thank you and I was really fortunate enough to be asked by the team to give you a um i'm not even going to say confident a pep talk yes I'm, yes because i was terrified <laughs> do you know what it was oh. it was incredible oh. thank you as i dribble <laughs> hot chocolate right, you, oh, i missed myself yeah you missed yourself <laughs> fine. did you um i mean growing up when with someone who is you obviously knew he was very sick yes growing up with that did you um did you see yourself as a carer or a sister? I was always his sister. And then I was given an opportunity to be his carer. In the sense of I... Um, I it was my first year of uni, came home at Easter, I think it was. 
and my brother was dialysing at home and he was not in a good way at all he'd lost so much weight and I'd just obviously been off having a great time and then I think it was quite humbling to come home and realise that he just wasn't well and needed, needed help and he never asked for it but I spoke to my mum privately and just said look can you speak to the hospital about whether or not I would be allowed to donate so and she did they weren't necessarily discouraging but because I was only 20 at the time and had children or anything they very much kind of wanted to make sure that I really wanted to do this um, so started about six months worth of testing and also they were very clear that just because we were siblings didn't mean I would have been a positive match but sure it actually transpired that I could was the most perfect match I could have possibly been to him and then I donated my kidney to him in the October which was beautiful because I then got to see him have three years of complete freedom before he died and even with hindsight and knowing that that was gonna if someone said would I still do it hands down I'd do it every time because I think until you haven't got your health, a lot of the time we don't appreciate how lucky we are to have it. So to be able to give that gift to someone and someone that you love that much, it's not even a question really for me. What did he, um, how did he respond when you told him you were going to donate? He didn't react to it until the day I was being wheeled, the day of the actual operation and they hadn't told him I was going to surgery and all I could hear as I was being wheeled down with these flip-flops because he just wore flip-flops all the time flip-flops and these Adidas poppers that you could just pop open <laughs> I remember them so clearly <laughs> he was obsessed with them and he'd always have like half a leg only yeah. one of them on I'm just like do them up but what is this flappiness it's bizarre what is this flappiness <laughs> um, and he cried and I think it was the first time he allowed himself to feel what he'd been wanting to feel which was hope and I cried, and my, the, my boyfriend at the time cried, and my mum, everyone was crying, the nurses, because I think it was just one of those really, really beautiful, poignant moments that you don't get a lot in life. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's devastating to think about it, but it's also really beautiful, because um, that's kind of it's a gift you could, not many people get to do or give, so. What a lovely way to look at it as a gift rather than a burden oh yeah that's incredible and how um, how was your recovery after that I went into a very serious deep depression no one really kind of spoke to me about the reality that your body can go through I mean it's trauma isn't it you're, you, you, you go to sleep and you wake up and your body there's something missing and it's confused um and it, now I understand that also I was on the, I think the non-hormonal, um, no, hormonal implant. And that doesn't agree with me. Hormones, not, it's not for me at all. And the combination of the withdrawal symptoms of the morphine, being on that, then had a breakup with my long-term boyfriend. I just was not coping well at all. I was very sensitive of him. Yeah. <laughs> we won't, we won't talk about that. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we were children, weren't we? I was 20. I hold no grudges at all. It was a flippant. No, but it's true. But, you know, I, as I'm getting older, I'm realising lots of the, there are many times where people aren't able to actually 
understand their own thoughts and feelings, so then they can't be sensitive to somebody else's. If you don't know you, you won't know anybody yeah, else. If exactly. you don't love you, you can't. Yeah, exactly. If you can't be loved, then you can't love anybody no. else. No, so, you know, don't hold grudges. So how did you, um, how did you pull yourself out of that low? I was incredibly lucky that I had some exceptional friends around me and they helped get me back to university because I probably had the best part of six months off. Um, got me back, were there, would make sure that if I needed anything, my parents, once they actually found out how bad I really was, because um, it, it, it basically, um, it was a cry for help because it was so serious. I was on the phone to a friend and I'd taken, I'd been drinking and, and taken loads of tablets, but it was never going to be anything serious. It, I mean, I, I didn't know it wasn't, but that's when they all realised that things were bad. Yeah. And never, people just rallied around me. I got support. Um, I was put on antidepressants. I'm a massive advocate of them. I, it's, I think it's very much about you being in control of it. But I was aware on a chemical level that my body was lacking something that it needed. And so that got me back up to a level that then I could then process what was going on in a more thoughtful manner and then I had counselling and I've had counselling probably three or four times in my life and I will have counselling probably another three or four times in my lifetime and I'm thankful for it I agree you can't knock it no therapy counselling whatever level you're (coughs) you're needing at the time yes and it can just be a chat with your mates yeah Um, we just don't we just don't talk enough no so you you recovered yes Finished your degree. Where, was you, where did you do your degree? The Arts Institute in Bournemouth. I did photography. Wow. Yeah. What were you listening to? Why? So, this is interesting. So, you stopped dancing when you went to university. And then I... And then this happened. Yeah. Yeah, which I've never actually put... I've never even thought about that. You need to dance again. I loved... I, I genuinely love dancing. I do Go love dancing. Go to my friend's dance box. Okay, I will. I'm, gonna link, I'm just going <laughs> to link you up. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll absolutely love Nat, who's, who's, who's a friend who goes there as well. Um, what was Bournemouth like? Oh, I loved it. Some of the best times of my life. And I, what I really enjoyed is once I got back to being me, in the purest sense of the word, I then fully immersed myself being there. I stayed there that summer. I then had my third year there, and it was just one of the best years of my life. I was just, yeah, really, I think because bef- previous to that I was coming home a lot to see my boyfriend I felt very much I was in between two worlds I was yeah. never able to commit because he didn't like me committing <coughs> he'd wanted me to stay in London I didn't I chose to do something else and so I think I was I was then finally free to just kind of be be a bit wild <laughs> be a bit wild and free which is why I don't want to be moving um, 2007 well, to 2008 you are frighteningly young <laughs> so musically there was a there was a resurgence of what I would call sort of second generation Brit pop around mm. um, and and you had dubstep was huge if yeah, I remember that rightly. was very big in our third year yeah I get a bit confused by dubstep right and because because I dance like a white man and suddenly dubstep fucks about with a beat and I and, and it actually makes me feel like I'm falling over so when I find really embarrassing because I love dancing yeah. like, I dance a lot um, and soul in particular is 
my thing. Oh, I love soul. And indie pop, actually, let's be honest. But dubstep, I actually feel slightly nauseous. Maybe I need to deal with that. To be honest, I don't listen to it anymore. It definitely has a place in my heart that's bad. <laughs> it's, it's staying there and it's probably not happening. You're locking that fucker away, aren't you? <laughs> so what did you do next? <coughs> well, I left uni and then... And then the um, financial crash happened and we were, job prospects were challenging. So I actually um, sort of just, not panicked, just got a job and was working at Gap. <laughs> I was a manager there. I opened the White City store, the new Westfield that they had yeah. there at the time. was there for about six months or so and I was like, this is not what I want to do. And then, God, what was I doing? Just pop, Just kind of floating little because it was actually then around then that Richard died right and that is then I just I was existing I wasn't living and just definitely floated until I decided to go travelling I went travelling for about seven or eight months in South America after he died yeah Um, and that that was me I very much was aware that I wasn't healing but I needed physical and mental space away from everyone and here to just go and just figure out what I needed. Wow, um, and you were traveling your own? No, I was with a friend for probably half of it and then I was by myself. But I'd met people there, yeah. so it was like meeting up with people and stuff there, so. And what, what are your what are your um, happiest and saddest memories of that, that era of traveling? Oh, one of the best ones is when I, the first time I was on my own and I couldn't speak that much of the language at the time and just managed to find this bus station got on the bus it was really busy and so the driver just managed to communicate we managed to figure it out but it was just like sit at the front so I was just sat at the front of this bus on the top of the steps and could just see the, the whole road ahead of me and it was just one of those moments which you know you have them but it just felt so freeing and I was like I'm doing this and I'm doing this on my own wow yeah it's very empowering that's I can actually that's tangible I yeah. can actually see I can see the colours and I can see the contrast between the road yeah. and, the, and, and the greenery side of it. And I can see your happily determined, not angrily determined, happily determined yeah. face. Yeah. Are you able to draw on that when you need to be determined again? Do you go back to that memory at all? Is it something you bank? Probably, it's, it's, I would say I'm sure it's probably there in the psyche. I just think it was a feeling that I probably then go back to where I go inside myself and have a moment and take whatever it is I need to then get me through whatever I'm struggling with at the time and that 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 was kind of the beginning I think of a new journey for me of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life and it still took years to kind of get to where I am now but it was all it it all fed into it and but that that was yeah I probably do I probably do draw upon that feeling I would say mm-hmm. not necessarily the visual but definitely sure. the feeling yeah sure. so you, you did that you came home then what did you do worked for a shoe company called TNF Slacks right. or Slack Slack yeah in, they were based in West London they made really cool shoes and I became their um, production manager and then sort of ran the business for them was there for about two or three years and then I was like I don't care about shoes this much <laughs> I want to do yeah, something I do <laughs> I mean, I love shoes, but I didn't care about it enough for me to warrant my life. You know, it was it was a great time, and it was a really 
an amazing experience because I think without that, I probably wouldn't have the confidence to then be like, I can start a business that in something I've never done before. Sure. Um, and then I took some time out and I nannied and nannied for this um, just exceptional family that I'm still friends with today. And then that's when I was there, I was given a safe space to create. And then I was able to create Pot's Kitchen, which was my first business. Tell me about that. Oh, it was beautiful. It was, <coughs> it was just coincidentally ended up being the way in which our family became a family again. So I think we would, we were all very much doing our own thing and not necessarily doing it together. And I was like, I want to start a supper club, Dad. Will you help me cook? And he was like, of course. And then Mum was like, I want to be involved too. So she helped host. And I was like, great. And then we just did it. And we all loved it. And it was really hard. It was exhausting. But I could, I could see light in both their eyes again. And that is just... There's no, there's no, there's no price on that. So what put that light in their eyes? I think, I think in one sense maybe recognising that they could see that this was the path that I was now on and that I was taking in that kind of sense, and I'm sure parents have it, when you can see that your child is about to embark on something that's theirs. <laughs> oh gosh, sorry. Okay. Um, and that's that's basically what that was for me. I think that's lovely. So, so it's it's not that they come back to the coincidence in a minute because it wasn't it's not that they were doing something that they love doing <coughs> and I understand this now having been a father for a long time mm. it was the joy in seeing you do something you love doing yeah and almost like you they were like lift, lifting you mm. so you could go yeah that's really interesting that is and I, and I understand I completely understand that with my kids mm. When you when they find the thing that and only two only two of them have done this so yeah. far the other two are still still searching um, but my my middle daughter she's utterly brilliant at, um, she does all our our studio management yeah. and for a long time she probably didn't know what she wanted to do and she could probably still say she doesn't but I know yeah. she's found it mm. it's really interesting so 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 pops supper club what was it pops yeah pops kitchen pops kitchen what was yeah. that called pops for because I call my dad pops. That's what my aunt called my Yay! granddaughter. My granddaughter. Love it. <laughs> and um, what happened? How did that develop? Organically. I just, you know, somehow people seem to like the look of it. Um, that's how my business partner found me. Um, he started following me on Instagram and at the time. I mean, I still do it a bit, but less so now because I'm a lot busier. But um, I used to always look at whoever started following Pop's Kitchen and be like, who are they? And investigate. And I saw that they would, at the time, he was doing a pop-up with his cousin uh, called Rum Shop. I was like, what is this? And there wasn't enough information, so I messaged going, oh, let me know when you've next got a pop-up. I'd love to come. And he, and he was like, yeah, no, I want to meet you too, actually. So I was like, cool. So went along, got very, very drunk on these punches that were lethal and delicious. And then we started collaborating. And what's his name? Joseph Pilgrim. Joseph Pilgrim. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Joseph Pilgrim. I've got Great some powerful names, names around but me. That's fucking good, <laughs> you know. Um, and ha- so, so he came to Pop's Kitchen. Well, no, we met. I went to one of his pop-ups. Yeah. And we met, and then we met again when I was more a little bit more sober. Or no, I was <laughs> I was sober. And then we decided to collaborate together. So they, he was going to, or they at the time were going to do a curated rum punch uh, drinks menu to run alongside the food. 
and then that's kind of how I was running all the supper clubs. They would do the drinks, I would do the food. And it just became apparent that we were kind of on similar trajectories. Mm -hmm. And so we got an opportunity to do two different residencies at the same time. So we did them both. I managed one and then they managed a street food site in Tottenham at the same time. And then by doing those, it kind of, we were like, look, it makes sense to kind of start a new business together. And Island Social Club was born in its infancy before it probably had a name. And then, then it, they did get a name and then we kind of decided that's it, we're doing Island Social Club. And then Pops, it's kind of still, I do little bits and pieces, but it's definitely Island Social Club. Um, and then Biko, who was our other business partner, he left, uh, was it late 2018? And then, yeah, we then got an opportunity to do this amazing residency last year. And Island Social Club was properly in the thick of it born really exciting we'd like spent a whole year just figuring out what we wanted it to be um for ourselves and to be able to put out there and then yeah it actually came to fruition it was great and what what do you want it to be how would you summarize it uh it's a space for people to come and experience british caribbean culture and also investigate it and learn about it and contribute to it. It's very much a community space. I love the finger that came oh. out. It was brilliant. It was like, that was your mum. Right? I was like, yeah, you can come, you can enjoy it, you can learn about it. Here's a finger, fucking contribute. <laughs> you have to contribute. I love that. Yes. But the thing is, the more we contribute to whatever we're doing or experiencing, even if it's just through conversation, and it's not just, conversation is incredibly important, it means we're taking something from it, but we're also giving a piece of ourselves. We, we build it higher. Exactly. And I love it. The more we do that, I think then we actually might actually, we might actually find a place of unity within this world. Where does it go next? Our own bricks and mortar site, which will be beautiful and colourful and vibrant and... Home. South Our London, East home. London, Tottenham. East. East. East first, south second. Yes. And then I've got to go back home. The world. <laughs> um, do, what does, um, I mean, obviously you're second generation. Yes. And you, you know, you create these amazing, this amazing food and your partner, this amazing drinks. Mm. And then your parents, mm. or, or do your grandparents still, are they still around? One, I've got one. He, my, she? my nan. Your nan? Does she live in the UK? She lives in South London in Earlsfield. She's still there. When she comes to, to Island Social Club? Oh, it was so cute. She'd be brought, they, my um, family brought her for her birthday in October. And she just sort of sat there in the corner looking very sweet. And she made a little speech and it was very adorable. She was like, it was lovely to see you all here in Marie's place. <laughs> Does she like your food? She does like the food. She helps. Like, when, you know, we used to kind of do recipe testing. I'd be like, Nan, I need you to show me something. <laughs> and so we'd just, I'd get her to my house and we'd like fry fish and just chat. And it, it's just an opportunity to kind of archive some of the things that she's experienced. And what, what was your brother's favourite food? Oh, rice and peas. He used to take mum, make mum and dad cook it and then he would take it back to university and freeze it which is a bean isn't it rather than a pea yes yeah. but my yeah. parents use a dookie beans not oh. kidney oh very middle class <laughs> <laughs> I like that enormously and do um, do you do that I don't make it I can and I have but my dad makes the best rice and peas and is, so I think why, why am I messing with it is it on the menu no we'd make roti 
Oh, which is a Trinidadian Jamaican. Trinidadian and Guyana. Yeah. They make roti. It's essentially, an, it, it came from the Indo-Caribbean community. Yeah. I, I, I found out lots about Trinidad recently, including the word liming. Oh, yeah. Which I really, really <laughs> like. Like knocking about with your mates. Liming. What are you doing? I'm liming. Are you just tossing about? No, no. No, no. It's a thing. <laughs> so what do you do for liming? Uh, we have shubs. Shubs. Yeah, that's what we call them, like little parties. I can do it. Honestly, for the audio, right? I'm looking at Marie, who doesn't dance anymore. She's not, you know, dancing's not for her. And she says the word shubs, and her shoulders are going like mine do when I put the Pet Shop Boys on. You have got to dance. Uh, I do all the time, really. I thought you might do in the kitchen. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So so what's the vision? Where are you going? We are. We've got some really exciting plans in the works. Restaurant and food and drinks really important, but the we're getting an opportunity now. We're having a bit of not hiatus, but of downtime um, to be able to do more of the cultural stuff. So a film festival yeah. in the summer, fingers crossed. Um, there's some potential books in the works uh, individually and um, together. And I mean, fingers crossed. Uh, and then just also collaborating with more amazing people from black British culture and just black culture in, in general is the kind of dream. Amazing. Yeah. Just just really just um, having the opportunity to just be. Yeah. And not necessarily always having to put a label on it and just everyone being able to appreciate how special this, this culture is. There's a celebration, I mean, obviously, Windrush is um, celebrated rather than ignored, mm. politically contentious still. Mm. Yes. Um, and there's, I know for a fact there's lots of stuff going to happen to celebrate that this year. Yeah. Um, and one of my good friends, Rob Ryan, his wife, Lorna, is a, um, a black artist and has done the most amazing, beautiful paintings and mm. celebrations of, of um, black British culture. Mm. And it, it, it feels, it just feels glorious and it feels like it's powerful right now. And, and, and whether that be grime that comes off Tottenham or, we, or whether that be Stormzy in a Banksy vest or, or whether that be the black entrepreneurs that are coming through mm. like, it feels like it's the time mm. and when I was in Atlanta last mm. that's how I felt there mm. I just felt this this celebration mm. of of what people were where they were from people are taking space I think it's a, it, growing up now would be I mean it's an exceptionally beautiful time just I think what I would have had available I think it's really lucky that in some capacities, the youth that are coming up now because they're seeing examples of people that look like them and not in specific roles in whatever they want yeah. and being told, you know, it's really important. This is why people talk about representation. If you don't see reflections of yourself in all spectrums of life, you are constantly being told, you know, subconsciously that you don't belong in those spaces or in those, in those conversations. And we do and we are. And so it's beautiful to be able to be surrounded and see people succeeding in the fields that they want to without limitation. And that's, and that's not saying that there aren't limitations. Of course there are. 
and you know black people do have to work 20 times harder just to get the same recognition but that said there are people doing it and I'm continuously thankful for them paving the way and for keep keeping on trailblazing and setting amazing examples for people coming up now and they're thankful for what you're doing as well because you started with it you've talked about food um, you know, eating your way home. Food is a grounding. I can't remember the phrase that you use, but I'll, I'll use it in the recap. Mm. And and you're doing that for a another generation. You're doing that for the, for a second and a third generation. Mm. And um, I can't wait to go and eat where you. I can't wait to go and visit. I know. I really can't. Yes, <laughs> we will be back. I promise. <laughs> no, I believe you. I mean, you've just cooked my dinner, but, but it's Burmese food. <laughs> And it was utterly incredible. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah, it yeah. was. But Everyone should come and eat at Wadi, it's yummy. It is, I can, I can heartily recommend it. But there's something about you that is, um, is resilient in a way that isn't battered. You, you, you shine and, se- and you celebrate strength in such a way. And the first time I met I met you, your partner, husband, married? Husband now, husband yeah, now. hubby. You, you both just like, <laughs> you've just got this serenity. You've got this serenity that is so magnetic. Oh, he does, he, he keeps me very calm. Yeah, I can see, yeah. I can see that. But you keep him alive. Oh. Like, I, I can see that as well. It's emotional. Always. <laughs> Marie, you're astonishing. I... I absolutely adore what you do, and most importantly, I really adore how you do it. Yay, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for having me. Oh. <laughs> wow. Amazing conversation, and just, just a lovely analysis, I guess, of, of what, what home means, what food means, what flavour means most of all what family means and when you give everything for your sibling when you willingly give everything for your sibling that's that's love like right there and what I loved about it was Marie never forgot herself in all of this never lost herself and I just I love those tales and and just thinking back to the recording is when when Marie mentioned her 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 mum uh, her face split and the smile and the love and the the, the 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 sheer joy when she talked about her parents and the importance of food to that first generation um immigrant population uh, and i just get I've got this, this vision of her mum buying all the fruit she can buy every time she goes she goes to a place with amazing fruit and i i i love that totally totally heartwarming incredible conversation um please share please please share and she's going to go on to do amazing things um covid19 allowing she's going to be speaking at my reasons to be cheerful day at um the good life experience in the middle of September. Um, and I think she's also doing cookery demonstration um, there as well. So try and get along to that if you can. 
um, it's a it's a great it's, it's not my festival but it's a it's a great festival and, and really worth going out of your way to to be there um, but I hope you enjoyed that I really do if any comments any feedback anything really please drop me a line and uh, mark at thisisape.co.uk or I think you can comment on the podcast actually and uh, whatever you're doing have a great day thank you